The title of today's sermon is A Godly Life. We've looked at a godly wife, a godly husband, and now a godly life. And this text is very important for us this morning, Flatland Bible Church. I'd like to say, as by way of introduction, uh, we are a ripe two months old in this church. And as such, we are very much in our infancy. Only, know, only the Lord knows what will become of this church. But we pray that many years and decades and generations of faithfulness lay before us. I've told you many times that um, Gabby and I, we like to watch nature shows. One of the more sad realities of the wild is that there are many predators who prey on the small in a litter. The mom will be off hunting for food to feed her litter, and this is a perfect opportunity for a predator to come in and take off part of that litter. Why? Because there's just no match that a little baby cub has against the strength and agility and speed of a full-grown predator in the wild. There's really a spiritual lesson here, I think, and certainly one that I think applies to us as a church. We are in our infancy, and as such, we are much more vulnerable to the attacks of our enemy. There is so much that we are still working out and figuring out as a church, and as such, we are ripe for dysfunction and disunity and discord. Just because we are in our infancy, though, that does not mean that we are hopeless and helpless. We can look around at the church universal, and we can find local expressions of the church all over the globe who have grown out of their infancy and into a thriving local congregation, and they have many years of faithful gospel witness. So instead of us taking on the mindset of, you know, let's look around and what's the newest megachurch doing that is so wildly successful? Instead, what we want to do is, what are the churches that have stood the test of time? What are they doing? The churches that have a faithful gospel witness, that have faithfully been proclaiming the truth for decades and years upon years, what are they doing? I think what they'd say if we could have a conversation with them is they would lift up this Bible and they would say, you know what we did is whatever this word said to do. That's what we did. Where the word spoke, we applied it to our life. You know why? Because God honors his word. That is the reality of our personal life and certainly in the, church, uh, in the church life. And so it will be for us, insofar as much as you and I, individually and then corporately, look at what this Word has to say and then apply it to our lives faithfully, joyfully, and consistently, we will see that we will live in God's divine favor. In other words, we will have the blessed life. We will be living the good life. But how do we get from there, from here to there? We take what this Bible says, namely our text today. I want to intro this way this morning because we're going to see that Peter is now turning his attention to the Christian community. Back in chapter 1, verse 13 there a large section of practical Christian teaching began where Peter wrote, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation 
of Jesus Christ as obedient children. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And then he has gone on since then to talk about how to be obedient children, how to live lives of holiness, how to put off our old life and put on the new life. That was the introduction to this large section that we are now finishing up today. It's been practical teaching on how to be a faithful sojourner, how to walk worthy in a wayward world. Peter called us to put off the old life and walk in the new way of holiness. After all, we've been purchased with a price, the price of the precious blood of Christ. We are to put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, and crave the pure spiritual milk of the word like newborn infants. You remember that from early in chapter 2. We are to live in light of our new identity as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession who He has called out of darkness and into His own marvelous light. Why? So that we would proclaim His excellencies. You remember that from about the middle of chapter 2. Josh brought that. All of this should lead us then to lead lives of submission. Submission first to the government. Slaves should submit to their masters, wives should submit to their husbands, and husbands ought to love their wives well, honoring them as co-heirs with us of the grace of life. Where Peter started off with some general teaching there early on in chapter 1, then he kind of zoomed in with the different ways of submission later in chapter 2 and early in chapter 3, now he's zooming back out to give us a sort of summary of what a godly life looks like. Here is what it looks like to lead a godly life. And this is going to be the end of this larger section of practical Christian teaching. And that's why I have titled this sermon this morning, A Godly Life. Because that's the simplest way to convey what Peter is getting at in these five verses. So if you would, take your copy of God's Word and stand with us as we read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. This is the word of the living God. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we now turn our attention to study your word and to hear from you through your word, I pray that you would indeed open our eyes and our minds and our hearts that we may receive the truth of your word by the power of the Spirit. I pray that it would be a seed that finds fertile soil in the grounds of our hearts that would bear much fruit for your glory. I pray that as I speak this morning, it would be your words, not my own. I pray that Christ would be exalted this morning, both in the proclamation and in the application of this text. We pray for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. As we consider what a godly life is and what it looks like, let's look first at our major heading today, which is how the godly engage in community. How the Godly Engage in Community. I said a bit ago that these five verses serve as a closing to a major section where Peter has been dealing with very practical Christian living. And this is demonstrated by him saying, finally, or in summary, or to sum all of this up. Let's read it again together, just verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, 
brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Finally, all of you. I want to clearly point out that now Peter is addressing believers on the whole. No longer just wives, husbands, or slaves, but all of the elect exiles in the dispersion. Flip a page over to chapter 1, maybe two pages over depending on your Bible. Just look at verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to who? To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in this place, that, and the other. And we know that through by extension of God's holy written word to the churches, that this is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It not only has application for then and there, but here and now. And so as he was introducing this letter to the elect exiles of the dispersion, now he says, finally, all of you. And so we can clearly see that this has application for, guess who? All of you. All of the elect exiles in the dispersion. I want to stress this because this is important for the church universal to hear, but it is all the more imperative for the church local to hear. That means you and I here in the local church. You see, it is teaching for all of the church all across the globe, but it is practiced and carried out in the context of the local church. Hopefully you'll be able to see this as we move along, looking at these five adjectives that Peter gives us to describe how believers ought to engage in Christian community. I want to stress the importance of Christian community. You and I were not meant to do this alone. There has never, ever been a such a thing as Christians who walk on their own. As a matter of fact, that's exactly who the enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion loves to find is the Christian who's straggling and isolating themselves just like those, that litter of cubs that the predators like to come after. They also like to get the ones that are off on their own because there's strength in numbers and there's weakness in that isolation. So let's look at this today. What is he saying that we need to practice in this Christian community. Well, we need to have unity of mind. And see, right away we can see that you cannot have unity of mind with other believers when you're not around other believers. When you're on your own, when you are distancing and isolating yourself from Christian community, you're united in mind with yourself. And you can say and explain away that however you choose, but having unity of mind implies, it is implicit in that statement that you are around other people that you need to be unified with. The word here means being united in the same mindset of another. It's from two root words that literally translate same and think. That we would have the same think together with other Christian people. This word is expressing that we all have the same thought, desire, and motivation, which is to live in a manner pleasing to God, especially as it pertains to our interaction with one another. Now, most of these words, these five adjectives that Peter gives us, only are found here in 1 Peter. So I don't want to keep repeating myself about that, but that's largely because these are the adjective form of words that are often find elsewhere in Scripture. So that is to say that this word can only be found right here, but this theme is very prevalent all throughout the New Testament. The idea of being unified is an essential Christian value, and it's essential for Christian community. It was very near the heart of Jesus, as evidenced in his high priestly prayer. John 17, if you've never read that before, by the way, that is where you can find the high priestly prayer of Jesus. 
It is just a long collection, or rather uh, writing, of Jesus' prayer to the Father. And it's so powerful, because throughout the Gospels, the writers will say, and then Jesus went off to pray. I often think, wouldn't it be great to just hear what Jesus is praying when he's off by himself? What is it that he prays? Wouldn't it be soul-stirring to hear the Word become flesh, the God incarnate, to hear what he prays? We don't have to guess. We just have to look at John 17. It's the high priestly prayer. We can see what's on Christ's mind in his prayers. We can see what's near and dear to his heart as this made it into the written canon of Holy Scripture. So then it's all the more important to catch what he says in chapter 17, verse 20 of John. You can turn there if you would like. John 17, verse 20. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, meaning his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Isn't that amazing? What is near to the heart of Christ and what is on his mind as he prays to the Father is that you and I would be one. Not just that we would not be mean to each other. I think sometimes we have such a low view of what unity and harmony means. It's not just that we would be able to smile and shake each other's hands on Sunday morning and say, God bless you, brother. That's not unity, my friends. We can do that with enmity in our hearts to, uh, towards each other. Unity is that we are one just like Christ and the Father are one. That's a tall order now, isn't it? That's a lot different than just being cordial towards one another. Well, isn't he speaking specifically of the disciples? Well, no. Verse 20 says, I don't ask only for them my disciples, but also for all of those who will believe in me through their word. Guess who that is? All of you. All of those who have believed in Christ through the word of the apostles, which is written for us in the word. If you have believed in Christ, this is for you. As I said a bit ago, this is for the church at large, that we would be one. But it is specifically applied and manifested in the local church context. In other words, in congregations just like ours. So hear me clearly this morning. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are under obligation to apply this to your life. You are obligated by God Almighty to be in unity with the other believers right here in this local congregation. And this is precisely why the apostles, in writing letters that were directly to churches, mind you, they include this theme all over the place. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. 1 Corinthians 1, 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree... And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Do you see that? Paul, the apostle, he could have appealed to his own apostolic authority and said, I, Paul, the apostle, say to you. But what he says instead is, I appeal to you by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is as high a charge as there is, my friends, because Jesus told us all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Him. Philippians chapter 2, verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Romans chapter 12, verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. 
Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We could go on and on and on, but I think you see the point that all of Scripture in unison is saying unity is crucial, it is fundamental to Christian community. The charge is for Christians everywhere, and it is applied and carried out in the context of the local church. Jesus prayed this again in John 17, 23. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. His desire was that we would be one as He and the Father are one and that through this perfect unity, the world would come to know that the Father sent the Son. In other words, this affects your gospel witness. Does this mean that we're always going to see things exactly the same and we all have to like the same color and we all have to say this, have the same vocabulary? Of course it doesn't mean that. God has made you with a personality. But what it does mean, though, is that we would be more eager to maintain our unity together than we will to take personal offense, to push our own way, or to cause some sort of unnecessary and unhelpful friction. That's what it is to have unity with one another. Now, to be sure, this kind of unity is absolutely impossible in the flesh. It cannot ever be achieved. And how can I say that? Because Jesus prayed that we would have unity like the Father and the Son have unity. Unity is a reflection of that perfect relationship, and as such, it cannot be achieved by worldly means, or by political agendas, or by plans, or processes, or procedures. No, this unity comes from being unified in the Spirit. When we all have the same Holy Spirit within us, that is what unifies us together. And then we walk out that unity by being intentionally eager to maintain it, Ephesians 4.3. That is why you'll never see the feeble, inept attempts to bring so-called racial reconciliation about by the likes of critical race theory. Or you'll never see a, godly pre un, a godless president truly be able to unify our country. It is something that can only be observed by a world lost in sin. But for us as believers, this should mark our community in such a way that it testifies of the Father's love for us. Do you understand the very high importance of having unity of mind? Let me add a further point. This is why you, there is no such thing as church online. We live stream our services in case you can't be here for some reason. But you cannot have community online. You cannot have community with people you never see. You cannot have community with total strangers. You cannot have community via text message. Community implies being around one another. Let's move on to sympathy. Sympathy means sharing the feelings of others, especially feelings of sorrow or anguish. And once again, the word is only used here, but the similar idea is in 1 Corinthians 12, 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The idea is feeling what those in your Christian community feel and those in the church universal. A good example would be of our brothers and sisters who are in Afghanistan right now. They're suffering tremendous persecution at this hour. And it's easy for us to hear about it and be numb to it and indifferent towards it. Why? Because, well, we don't know them. I don't know a single person who is over there right now. We can't see them. We are unaffected by what's going on over there at this moment. But having this kind of sympathy that Peter speaks of causes us to weep with those who weep. 
that we understand that we are members of the same body as they endure sorrow upon sorrow right now. We ought to feel that. Why? Because this is the bride of Christ, my friends. These are our brothers and sisters who Christ spilled His blood for. And we ought to love them because God loves them and because they love the Lord. What about the situation surrounding COVID? Many people, both believers and unbelievers, are anxious, fearful, and even hurting as we deal with the difficulties of COVID. Arguments abound regarding whether or not you should take the vaccine or whether or not people should wear masks. Much of this causes an uproar and everyone begins to yell at each other because everyone is telling the other side to wake up. Because of the madness, sympathy is falling to the wayside. We aren't sympathizing with one another in saying that, hey, let's just be honest, this is a difficult situation. No one really knows what to do. We're all doing the best that we can to apply God's Word to our lives, and we're trying our hardest. And some people are genuinely suffering through this time, and are we sympathizing with them? Those who know and trust the Lord ought to be doing all that we can to walk sympathetically with those around us on both sides of the fence. Yet there is another side of this coin as well, isn't there? It's not just to mourn with those who mourn, but to rejoice with those who rejoice. Romans 12.15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You know as well as I that we could all use some good news. There's bad news everywhere we turn. Get on social media, bad news, bad news. Turn on the TV, bad news, bad news. Everywhere you look, it's bad news. And by all means, when you have bad news, share it with the body so that we can sympathize with you and we can mourn and weep with you and bear that burden with you. But don't neglect to share your good news too. Share with us opportunities to rejoice with you. You know why? Because your brothers and sisters, when you ask for us to pray, we're going to pray with you and for you. We need to know, has God answered? Did God come through? Has He answered your prayer? Share it. We would love to rejoice with you and have our faith mutually encouraged along with you. Third, he says brotherly love here, doesn't he? Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love. The word is meaning brotherly loving, characterized by love for fellow believers as brothers or sisters in God's family. Brotherly love is the sum of all of the other virtues in this list, isn't it? The other virtues are how you live out brotherly love. In fact, as you'll see in a moment, this is a literary tool that Paul, uh, Peter is using as he fo is following this sort of pattern. If you look at it, look at the text with me, verse 8. The first and last virtue are very similar. Unity of mind and a humble mind. And then the second and fourth virtue are very similar. Sympathy and a tender heart. And they all come to a pinnacle with brotherly love. They all surround brotherly love as they truly are the expression and the outworking of brotherly love. You can't have brotherly love for each other and not have unity of mind and not sympathize with each other and not have a tender heart towards each other. You can't truly walk the rest of this out without brotherly love. And Peter has already spoken of brotherly love earlier in chapter 1. Verse 22, if you want to flip over there and look at it. In chapter 1, 22, when he wrote, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Here is reason 765 of why you have to engage in local Christian community is because you cannot eagerly love one another if you don't see each other. As you know, this is also the command of Jesus. John chapter 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, 
that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see that again. It affects our gospel witness. Our unity together and love for each other will both testify to a watching world. Our unity testifies that God loves us and our love that we are Christ's disciples. The world might hate us, but the Christian community must be a place where we can huddle together for warmth. This love in us is evidence that we have truly been born again, by the way. If you don't have love for your brothers and sisters, it is evidence, my friend, that you don't know the Lord, despite your profession. 1 John chapter 3, 13 and 14. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. What is John saying? Evidence that you have been born again is your love for brothers and sisters in the faith. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. Why? Because it's brotherly love. We are brought into God's family undeservingly, by the way. We don't deserve to be brought into His family, but He has adopted us into His family and given us His Holy Spirit. And that Spirit causes us to love other people who are in this same family who possess the Spirit of God. Then he says, a tender heart. This word means being compassionate or tender-hearted. It's conceived of one's compassionate internal feature known as the bowels being good. The word means good bowels. It's a very bizarre thing to say to each other, isn't it? Hey, you've got great bowels. Excuse me, sir. The, the idea is that it's describing a deep inner feeling for someone, that you feel it in your bowels. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And you see how this is related to sympathy. It's displayed again perfectly in who Christ Jesus. The compassion that the triune God felt for lost sinners led the Father to send His only Son to this broken, wicked world to save sinners as brands from the fire. Jesus felt agony over the lost. He displayed His compassion for the lost, Luke chapter 19, verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus is weeping, feeling compassion for the lost. When Jesus stood outside the tomb of Lazarus, John records for us a very short but very powerful sentence that displays the compassion of Jesus. John eleven thirty five, 35, Jesus wept. The deep, heartfelt compassion is what having a tender heart looks like. I don't know about you, but I want to be more like that. I pray that we all become more like this, where we're so closely knit together that we feel each other's pain deeply. His last virtue is a humble mind. It is marked by meek or modest thoughts about oneself. Paul said it well in Romans 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Wow. If we would apply just that. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. This is so well connected to unity of mind because one, he's referring to our minds in both of these descriptions, and two, because without humility, we cannot have unity. 
If all of us are prideful, there's none, none of us are going to want humi- uh, unity because we will all want our own way. Again, Paul later in Romans 12, verse 16, live in harmony with one another. How? Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. If we are haughty, if we are wise in our own sight, unity is impossible. How can we be wise in our own sight? I don't really have to do all that. Me and God kind of have our own thing going on. I've been a Christian longer than that man's been a pastor. Longer than that man's been alive. He's not going to tell me. Me and God have our own thing going on. I know how to do this. You know what that is? It's being wise in your own sight. Not bowing in humility to what God has written. There are endless examples that we could look at, couldn't we? But with that said, let's take a step back and ask, what's the opposite of all of these virtues? What if we don't have them? Instead of unity, there will be division. Instead of sympathy, we'll be cold to each other. Instead of love, there will be hate. Instead of tenderheartedness, there will be hearts hardened against each other. And instead of humility of mind, we'll be prideful. That, my friends, is how a church collapses. And how we can all live lives that do not please God as we ruin our gospel witness. I'd like to take one more point under this heading, one more time, to say that you cannot truly practice these virtues when you isolate yourself from Christian community. You cannot practice these virtues, my friends, if you are not here. If you are just interested in how little you can be here so that I can appease my conscience and feel better that I attended church My friend, you cannot practice these virtues that God has called you to apply. Not just me, not just the person sitting next to you, but you. You see, the church at Ephesus, Jesus rebukes in Revelation chapter 2, and this is one of my great fears. They had sound doctrine. They loved the truth. But you know what Jesus had against them? Is that they didn't love How terrible is that? That we could be people, that's a danger, you know, is that we could be people who are so, oh, we know sound doctrine, oh, we know the truth, but we don't really have unity together. We don't really love each other. We're not really around one another. We don't really see each other. We're just trying to do the very bare minimum. Let it not be so of us, Flatland. Let us see these words and say, we want to do this. We want to apply that to our lives so that Christ can be glorified. Let's move on to our second point. How the godly respond to being mistreated. Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Verse 8 was focused on the Christian community. And now verse 9 is more looking at the outside world. We anticipate the outside world to be acting in an evil way towards us and reviling us. But how do we respond? How do we respond when strangers commit a crime against us or hurl insults at us? How do we respond when it's our family or friends or co-workers The word evil is really indicating someone doing something morally repugnant to you. It is an action that someone has done something horrible to you. Whereas reviling is still hurtful, if not more, but it's focused on words that are intended to harm. That's what he's referring to when he says evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Both the evil action and cruel words are intended to cause harm. And so often, our natural reaction when people treat us this way is what to do exactly what Peter says not to do, isn't it? Oh, you're going to key my car? I'll key your car. You're going to TP my house? I'll TP your house. I don't know if people still do that. You understand the point. You treat me poorly, I'll treat you poorly. You want to talk bad to me, I'll talk bad to you. That is not 
the virtues that a Christian adorns themselves with. What does Peter say to do? He says to bless them. Look at it. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Are you kidding me? This, this is, folks, this goes beyond not just responding in like manner. This is giving them an opposite reaction to when they were expecting to get back from you. They treat you poorly, you treat them great. They speak evil of you, you speak highly of them. You bless them, and most importantly, in front of the Lord, in prayer, asking, what did Jesus say? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. That is a blessing in exchange for evil and reviling. But he's already touched on this point, hasn't he? If you look back at chapter 2, verse 23, when he was reviled, talking about Jesus, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Instead, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Paul also taught the Romans the same things. Romans 12, 17, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. This would have been so controversial in a culture that puts such a high value on honor, on showing and being honored, and getting revenge when you're dishonored. And so it is today. People like to say, you know, vengeance is a dish best served. I know you know it. Everyone's like, oh, I'm not going to say it. I don't, I don't get revenge. It's a dish best served cold. Revenge is a dish best served cold. And that became a popular quote. Why? Because people love to get vengeance. People want to get even. But to be a faithful sojourner, you instead entrust yourself to the Lord, trusting that one day He will vindicate you. And with that hope in mind, you bless them instead. This is what God has called you to. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. How would we be like Him? Because He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. You are like your Father when you love your enemies. Not just tolerate them, but that you love them. You bless them. Has someone wronged you? Love that person and bless them. Because this is what God has called you to do. Has a friend really hurt your feelings by something they said? Don't hold a grudge. Don't try to get even. Bless them and love them. Has a coworker mistreated you? Don't give them the cold shoulder. Love that person and bless them because this is what God has called you to do. Our last point. How the godly enjoy the good life. Whoa. We were talking about prosperity preaching this morning. Watch out, Jacob. What we, the good life. Isn't this what prosperity preachers talk about? Let's look, verses 10 through 12. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. These three verses that Peter is quoting is from Psalm 34, as I told you earlier. And it's interesting to note about Psalm 34, it's a psalm of David where he is writing a song of praise about how God delivered him from the wicked. Isn't that what First Peter's about? God delivering us, we're entrusting ourselves to him and he delivers us. It's about him still living in a righteous way in an unrighteous world. 
It sure sounds like faithful sojourners walking worthy in a wayward world, doesn't it? Peter here is using the psalmist's words to describe someone who wants to live the good life and how to live it. Show of hands, who in here wants to live the good life? Great. Three people and then a couple more liars. All right. The reality, <laughs> the reality is that we won't truly experience the good life in its fullness until we are passed over in glory. But we can get glimpses of it as we live here and now in the favor of God. We can see, though, that this is why the word of faith preaching, the prosperity gospel, and really your regular run-of-the-mill seeker-friendly preaching draws such a crowd, can't we? Because people want to enjoy their life. We want the good life. So churches cater to that kind of crowd. You walk into the church and you can check out the fantastic coffee bar. and Everyone is smiling and taking pictures together. And You go into the sanctuary and it looks more like a Maroon 5 concert with the house lights down low and the stage lit up beautifully and perfectly. The stage lights are strategically timed for parts of the music. There's a big LED wall behind the band, and the music is fun. It's energetic, and it's uplifting. And the preacher comes out, and he's so full of energy and stirring up the crowd into a fever pitch. People all around are shouting amen and clapping their hands and getting out of their seats, and he keeps dropping these fancy little one-liners. He says everything that's really pithy, and he keeps talking about how you're only steps away from your breakthrough. How many times can you be steps away from your breakthrough before you actually break through? He says stuff like, God has you on the cusp. It's not a breakdown, it's a breakthrough. Your rock bottom is about to become your stepping stone. And you're going to slay the Goliath of debt with your stone of faith. You leave and you're so encouraged. You're motivated. You're feeling this spiritual high. You finally found it. You found people who are living the good life. That kind of preaching is so popular because you're promised that you can get the crown without the cross. Sure, you might have to deal with some people that... Get under your skin and you might hit a few speed bumps while you're in the fast lane to your destiny. But this is the good life. The reality is that spiritual high is nothing more than a sugar rush. The reality is that you don't get the crown without the cross. You don't get eternal riches until you see how morally bankrupt you are. You don't get purified without the flames of affliction. You don't get new life until you die. You want to live the good life? You can, you know. How? You keep your tongue from evil. You don't tell lies. You seek and pursue peace. You turn from evil and you do good. In other words, you do verses 8 and 9 in community together. When Peter writes here that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous... And his ears are open to the prayer. My friends, that's the good life. To say the Lord's eyes are upon you is an Old Testament way of saying that God's watching over you with watchful, loving care. To say that his ear is open to your prayer is meaning that he is ready to answer your supplications, your petitions, and your requests before him. Can you imagine the God of the universe ready to answer your prayer? 1 John 5, 14 and 15. This is the confidence that we have toward Him. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. That is the good life. The wicked are not so. If you choose to live in opposition to everything listed in these five verses, then you place yourself squarely in the reference made in the last line of verse 12. Look at it with me. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 
Once again, this is the Old Testament way of saying that God himself is opposing you. He gives grace to the humble, but opposes the proud. There is, however, one prayer that the sinner, the unrighteous, the one who does evil, as mentioned in this verse, there is one prayer that person can pray that God will hasten to answer. And it's the prayer of repentance. It's the prayer pleading for mercy. What I love about our faith, about the gospel, is that the one requirement of salvation is that you must be a sinner. It is sinners who God sent His Son for. And it is sinners who Christ gave His life for. It is sinners who God saves and then causes to live together in the community of the redeemed. My friends, that's what the church is. That's what a godly life looks like. That's how the godly engage in community. That's how the godly respond when they are mistreated. If you've never believed in Jesus for salvation, do so today. Romans 10.13 promises that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's stand. To live a godly life means to live together with other godly people who are pursuing godly virtues in the community of the redeemed. I pray that Christ is glorified as we apply this text to our lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you after having heard clearly, I hope, from your word. Lord, we confess who can do this except for by the power of the Spirit. We confess we want to be the people who apply this to our lives. Lord, we want to be able to say 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years, however long you give us on this earth and until you come, we want to be able to look back and say, we might not have the biggest church, but we've been faithful. God has been faithful to us. Lord, we want to live a godly life, one that honors and glorifies Christ Jesus, for he bled, suffered, and died for us on our behalf, that we could enjoy fullness of life and pleasures forevermore at your right hand. So Lord, I pray that you would have your way amongst us, amongst each of us individually and then corporately, that we would truly be people who live a godly life. For all of this, in the name of Jesus, amen.